The, the tune was written by James Ward, a PCA ruling elder up in Chattanooga. But he was, um, during the 70s, he was one of the early Christian contemporary um, musicians. And he came down to Brandon, uh, down to the rec- recording studio that's right next door to us to record all his uh, albums. And uh, I, didn't need, I don't even know if, if I've told you before that we have a Christian recording studio that's uh, next door. Um, this is a, a second little story, but um, soon after Jack Graham came here to be the pastor, uh, the guys there at the Christian recording studio brought their their amplifiers outside, and it was a, uh, a couple of Christian groups were there, and they decided to have a big jam session outside. Jack Graham was trying to study for a sermon and called the police on him. <laughs> and those of you who know Jack, and, um, and uh, but he didn't know that they were Christians uh, at the time. I don't know if it would have mattered much. <laughs> uh, if you'll open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, this is a part 2 uh, for the sermon I began last week. Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Therefore God has, ex- has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Let's pray. Father, as we have... Uh, opened up and read this prophecy of the um, universal reign of Jesus Christ at the end of history when every tongue in heaven and on earth and under the earth will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord when every knee shall bow to Him. We understand that His exaltation has already begun. That He is King Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords. And so we pray that He would rule and reign over our hearts as we sit in submission to His holy Word. We ask in His name, Amen. 1856 was an eventful year for Charles Spurgeon. At the beginning of January in 1856, he married Susanna Thompson. And by the end of September, she gave birth to twin boys. His popularity as a preacher exceeded the church's ability to accommodate the crowds that were coming from all over London to hear him each Sunday. So what they did was they began renting out the Surrey Music Hall in London Uh, to hold services on Sunday evening. So they would have the regular Sunday service in their church, but then uh, the music hall um, on Sunday evenings. Spurgeon's first service at the uh, Surrey Music Hall was planned for October 19th of that same year. There were 10,000 people that had gathered inside the music hall And there were nearly as many people outside wishing that they could get in. Spurgeon was, of course, the most popular preacher 
of his time? Guess how old he was in 1856? Only 22 years old. Well, this first service at the Surrey Music Hall uh, started with some Scripture reading. And then they had prayer and a couple of hymns. And uh, then Spurgeon was to uh, stand up and preach. But after the second hymn had ended, uh, a couple of uh, teenage boys decided to have a little fun and stood up and yelled, Fire! Fire! And people panicked. It started a stampede. Uh, People began scrambling for the exits. Seven people were trampled to death. Many, many others were injured. Needless to say, young Charles Spurgeon was completely undone. He could not not bring himself to preach the next week. And finally, when he he returned to the pulpit uh, two weeks later, here's how he opened his sermon. He said, I almost regret this morning that I have ventured to occupy this pulpit because I feel utterly unable to preach to you for your profit. I had thought the quiet and repose of the last fortnight had removed the effects of that terrible catastrophe. But on coming back to that same, to the same spot again, and more especially standing here to address you, I feel somewhat of of those same painful emotions which well nigh which well nigh prostrated uh, me before. The only reason he said that he could climb the steps to the pulpit and preach that morning was the very scripture that we are considering uh, here in our own service, uh, Philippians chapter two, verses nine through eleven. And what had happened with Spurgeon is earlier in the week. He had been walking in a garden and this very passage was brought back to his memory with a powerful effect. So it raises the question, why was it this text, Philippians 2, 9-11, that Spurgeon turned to for comfort? Why was this passage so powerfully comforting to him? I believe that Charles Spurgeon knew what we are going to consider this morning, that the, that the exalt, exaltation of Jesus Christ emboldens our own suffering. You will remember that Paul is writing to a congregation in Philippi that is struggling to remain unified. Uh, they, were, they, they had some the beginnings and maybe even past beginnings of dissension in the church. So Paul pointed to the humiliation and exaltation of Christ as the model and power source for church unity. And we spent the last three Sundays really concentrating on that. But you'll also remember that the congregation in Philippi was suffering persecution. Look back at chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. And let me uh, read it again to remind you. In chapter 1, verse 27, Paul says, 
Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. See, they're their opponents uh, that were that were opposing the gospel and persecuting them. He goes on in verse 28, This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake, engaged in the same conflict you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Paul had heard about their suffering. Epaphroditus had traveled from Philippi and was visiting Paul as Paul was under house arrest. And and Epaphroditus had told them that uh, some of the Christians in Philippi had been arrested because of their commitment to Jesus Christ. That others had been shunned by their families when they became Christians. And, And that a few of the Christians in Philippi had been... Uh, had lost their lives as martyrs because of their their faithfulness to their Savior, Jesus Christ. So Philippians 2, verses 9-11, through 11, not only serves to remind us that God will lift us up when we humble ourselves and serve each other in the congregation, but also that Jesus, is the universal King. He is the King of the universe. That He is Lord. And those Philippians who were suffering needed to be reminded of that. See, Paul knows that it's important that for those Philippians, that they keep their faith focused on the Lord Jesus Christ in the midst of their suffering. The Philippian Christians uh, needed to constantly remember that their lives uh, were in Christ's sovereign and all-powerful hands. That their difficult circumstances were not accidents or random acts of wickedness on the part of their opponents or even, ultimately, the triumph of Satan but rather they were suffering because it had been granted to them. It had been grace to them. That it was God's blessing to them that they were suffering. They needed to know that when they were called to suffer or to be persecuted uh, for the sake of the Gospel, that Jesus Christ, the Lord of the universe, loved them that He planned out their every circumstance. And He planned out their every circumstance from eternity past before they had even been a gleam or glitter in their parents' eye, so to speak, that Christ had planned out their entire lives and that He held their lives firmly in His all-powerful hand, that they were in His grip and nothing in heaven or on earth or under the earth, nothing at all 
would be able to separate them from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In short, they needed to keep before them the fact that Christ had been had risen from the dead, that He ascended to the Father's right hand, and that Jesus Christ now is presently the exalted King of the universe, and that He is exercising His kingly rule for their good and for His glory. Every one of you has suffered in some way or another. I would venture to say every one of you is suffering presently in one form or another, in one degree or another. Some of you have lost a spouse to death. Others have ongoing physical ailments. Others have emotional scars. Others live with ongoing pain because of the, the actions of another person. And we could go on and on and on. But all of you who belong to Jesus Christ can know with absolute certainty that He loves you, that He is good, and that He is working in your life even in the midst of your suffering. Knowing that Jesus Christ is a sovereign King of the universe must embolden your suffering. Remember the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 5? Paul knew that God was the author of his suffering. So in Romans 5 verse 3, Paul says, I rejoice in my suffering. In Colossians, Paul says he fills up in his flesh the sufferings of Christ because he knew God being the author had a good and perfect design for the suffering that God was sending His way. The Bible is clear about God's sovereignty in the midst of suffering. But many evangelical Christians whose God is not the God of the Bible but their own happiness and personal fulfillment typically reject this type of teaching. George Barna, the Christian equivalent of George Gallup. George Barna is a, a, a Christian pollster, if you will, and does a lot of research. And he published a book back in the 1990s entitled, What Americans Believe. Listen to some of the results of his research. He said that six out of ten Americans believe the statement, God helps those who help, them, help themselves. And then he went on to say that his research astounded him in that four out of five evangelical Christians agreed with that statement. Barna commented in his book that this was a very disturbing statistic. He says that his research demonstrates that the overwhelming majority of Christians believe it is their duty to control their destiny. That Christians believe essentially that they are little gods who can run their own lives. Furthermore, Barna found that 50%, 56% of evangelical Christians believe their chief purpose in life is to enjoy themselves and to find personal fulfillment. No wonder American Christians find it difficult to suffer. No wonder American Christians wince or cringe 
when God says it has been granted to you to suffer for His sake. Suffering runs counter to their perceived purpose in life and causes confusion and frustration when the suffering teaches them that they are not ultimately in control of their own lives. Actually, I believe this resistance to suffering um, and, and these statistics that uh, George Barna uh, points out, I believe they really point to a deeper problem. Uh, the deeper problem is most American Christians are unwilling to submit to Jesus Christ as Lord. This is the essence of Christ's exaltation. Look again at verses 9-11. through 11. Therefore, God has highly exalted Him. The Greek word huper, uh, hyper, the, the word for, for which, from which we get hyper. God has hyper exalted, super exalted Christ and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The name that is above every name is not simply the name Jesus. Uh, every commentator uh, devoted paragraphs to pointing this out, that really the name that is exalted above every name, the name to which every knee shall bow, is this title given to Him, that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus is Lord. He is the Lord of lords. He is the King of kings. He has the name that is above every name, every person, every creature, in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, will confess that He is Lord to the glory of the Father. Every creature in heaven, on earth, and under the earth will bow their knees to King Jesus will bow their knees before His Lordship. And yet many Christians believe it is acceptable that it is acceptable to Christ to consider obedience to Him optional. Many Christians believe that submission to His Lordship is optional. Many believe that our commitment to Him, if our commitment to Him is minimal, that that's okay to Jesus. Many people believe that it's acceptable to Christ if our purpose in life is self-oriented rather than Christ-oriented. Thus, many Christians have sexual relations outside of marriage, even though the Bible clearly speaks to that issue. Many Christians justify gossip and backbiting. Many Christians uh, regularly view pornography. Many Christians prioritize self-interest. Many Christians lie easily. Many Christians practice manipulation of other people in direct contradiction to what we've been looking at the last three weeks where you, as a follower of Christ, as you, as one who is in Christ, 
must humble yourself and serve everybody else from the viewpoint of them being better than yourself. We could go on and on. George Barna said that 53% of evangelical Christians believe there is no such thing as absolute truth. In other words, for most Christians in America, the concept that Jesus is Lord of their lives is an optional truth that they choose to reject. Why is it that people consent to be Christians but reject the essence of Christ's position as Lord? Why, why not just reject Christianity outright if you're going to gut it from the inside? People want, and I, here's the reason, people want just enough of Jesus to get into heaven. They want to go to heaven, but they want to be the ultimate Lord of their lives. That was me. I know many of your testimonies, and you have said to me that that was also you. Many of you had that same self-conceived notion of Jesus that I had, that He was a heavenly bellhop to let us into heaven, that He was heavenly fire insurance. Um, But you found, many of you, just like I did, that you were trying to manipulate Jesus and weren't really a Christian at all. The verse that did it for me... Matthew seven twenty one through twenty three, Jesus said, "Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven." I began to think. I wonder if that's me. And he says, "Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not um, do these wonderful works? Did we not do these um, wonderful miracles? Did we not cast out demons?" And Jesus said. I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. It took me a long time to to convince myself that that was me. Because I had walked the aisle. I had joined a church. I had grown up in church. God spent uh, three years trying to tell me that He was speaking to me in that, in that passage. I wanted Jesus, I wanted enough of Jesus to get into heaven. Anything more than that, He was going to have to wait on at least until I got out of college and got married. You know, it's such a widespread concept that I would venture to say that there are some here this morning that only want Jesus' fire insurance but have never entrusted yourselves to Jesus Christ and bowed your knee to His Lordship. Now, when I say that, lest I be misunderstood, I am not saying that you must obey Jesus in order for you to become a Christian. Nobody can obey Jesus enough to become worthy of Him. Rather, I am saying you must flee to Jesus Christ with all your unworthiness and all your sin. Flee to Him. Bow your knee to Him. Bow your heart before Him. Bow your life before His Lordship. But when you do flee to Him, He places you by the Holy Spirit 
into Himself. The Bible says, I mentioned this last week, I've mentioned it many times over the years. When you come to Christ, you are placed into Him. The illustration I like to use is this this post-it note where you or me, when we come to Christ, God the Holy Spirit places us into Christ if this is Christ. And from no matter what angle God sees us, He sees Christ. Here's the good news. There is a real union between Christ and His people. You, when you come to Christ, you are knit to Him. You are wedded to Him. You become righteous because He is righteous. You become a child of God because He is the Son of God and you are in Him. You become new or renewed or transformed because you belong to Christ and His Spirit is in you. What can you do to become a Christian? Flee to Jesus Christ and remain in Him. Receive all His benefits. But the funny thing is, when you flee to Him and you remain in Him, you'll soon find that you fled to Him because He drew you to Himself. And that you remain in Him because He holds you tightly in His grip. It is by grace, by His grace, that you are saved. Now there's one other aspect of our union with Christ that I must emphasize this morning. uh, And then I'll be done. And that is our union with Christ means that we are united with Him in His glorification. Now that I've taken the post-it note out of my Bible, I'm having a hard time finding where I was. Our union with Christ means that we are united with Him also in His glorification. Christ's exaltation to the Father's right hand promises our glorification. We are now in Christ. And where is Christ? He is at the right hand of the Father. And we are in Him. What does that mean for us? The book of Philippians tells us It means that our citizenship is now in heaven because Christ is there and we are in Him. Charles Spurgeon said he felt so low and depressed after the tragedy at the Surrey Music Hall that he felt as if he would never be able to preach again. And the more people told him that he would be all right, the more distressed and depressed he became. But then, as he was walking in that garden, and this passage came to his mind, this passage lifted him up. That phrase in verse 9 caught his attention. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Therefore, God has highly exalted Christ. It gripped him. It was Christ verses, um, verses 5 through 8. It was Christ 
to the Lord Himself. Christ didn't worry about lifting Himself up. All Christ was worrying about was lowering Himself. In other words, the Father did the lifting. Christ did not try and climb on earth's mountains to raise Himself up. He lowered Himself and cast off His rights that He had as the Son of God and became a human being. Christ lowered Himself to stand in the place of sinners. Christ lowered Himself by becoming obedient, even obedient to death on the cross. Christ obediently embraced the cross. Christ obediently embraced the wrath of God as He stood as a sacrifice for sinners. Christ obediently embraced death itself. Christ lowered Himself. Therefore, the Father has super-exalted Him. Spurgeon remembered that the way to heaven is really downhill. Spurgeon said, He who would be honored must sink in his own esteem. He who would find unbounded riches must descend into the mines of suffering. He who would find the pearl of everlasting life must dive into the depths of grief. Spurgeon remembered that the greater the serving, the greater the suffering, then great, then also greater the eternal weight of glory. Spurgeon in that sermon two weeks after that tragedy, was speaking to his congregation. I really believe he was speaking to his own heart and preaching to himself when he said, Are you so broken in pieces, Christian? Christian, are you so broken in pieces? Think not that you are cast away forever. For God has highly exalted Him who did not exalt Himself. And this is a picture and prophecy for what He will do for you. Remember that picture last week that I tried to draw for you of the catapult of God um, ratcheting down the gears in our own humility and He will exalt us. The more we lower ourselves, the more we serve each other here in the congregation, the further down God ratchets us And it's painful at the time, giving up our rights, serving others, loving our enemies. But each ratchet further downward. The closer down that catapult gets to the ground, when God flips the gear, what happens to that rock? It flies off and it is highly exalted. And so also, some of you who daily suffer, some of you who experience emotional anguish and pain that frankly I have never experienced, some of you who have experienced loss, it feels like God's ratcheting down that catapult and it feels painful at the time. But hang on to Christ because as He is ratcheting you down, He is getting ready to trip the gear 
and, uh, and, and catapult you into places of glory. It may be places of glory that you are experiencing right now. A joy that cannot be taken or stolen. A joy that only God can give. It may be that you may go through the suffering, the pain, the anguish until the day you die. And the moment you close your eyes in death, God trips that gear and catapults you into His glory. I don't know your particular situation, but God has promised, just as He highly exalted Christ, and you were in Him, so He will highly exalt you. That's Paul's whole purpose in putting this passage here in this text. God is faithful. Let's pray. Lord God...